Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Each week, my business history co-host Scott Luton and I travel back through time to bring you the best business stories, innovations, people, and surprising facts, some of which you have probably heard of before and others of which are on the verge of being forgotten. If you enjoy our unique blend of storytelling and business history, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. Now, before I share this week's historical moment and story, I have a rather personal question to ask. Are you good at crossword puzzles? I'm not. I'm terrible at them. Crossword puzzles require two very important things. A good vocabulary and being able to think crossword puzzle logic. It is a very unique kind of thinking, and honestly, I just don't have it. I do know some crossword puzzle words, though. An ani is a bird, a tine is the little prong on a fork, and Iago, I-A-G-O, well, he's the bad guy from the Shakespeare play Othello, and a frequent crossword puzzle answer. Apparently that I, A, and O in a four-character word is important. On April 18th, 1924, the first crossword puzzle book was published by Simon & Schuster. It included an attached pencil and eraser, and people loved it immediately. But this wasn't the introduction of the crossword puzzle, just a book. For that, we have to go back a little bit further. The phrase crossword puzzle first appeared in 1862 in a U.S. children's magazine called Our Young Folks. In 1873, Crossword-like puzzles appeared in the magazine St. Nicholas, another children's magazine, this one published by Scribner's. On September 14, 1890, a 4x4 grid-shaped puzzle appeared in the Italian magazine Il Secolo Illustrato della Domenica. It was designed by a man named Giuseppe Aroldi and titled To Pass the Time. Well, it was actually titled something in Italian, but I've already attempted one Italian phrase, so you get that one only in English. Iroldi's puzzle didn't have any shaded squares like the puzzles we know today, but it did include horizontal and vertical clues. And, notably, it was for grown-ups. Crosswords were starting to make the transition from child's entertainment to adult hobby. In 1913, the first modern-day crossword puzzle was created by Arthur Wynne, and it was published on December 21st in the New York World, the paper that was run by Joseph Pulitzer, of prize fame, 
from 1883 to 1911. The New York world was considered yellow journalism, an approach to selling newspapers that relied upon sensation, sports, and scandal. His paper was in direct competition with William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal American. Think Citizen Kane. That was the fictional recreation of William Randolph Hearst by Orson Welles. These were papers for common people, part news and part entertainment. I won't venture to estimate in what proportion. But I digress, back to the puzzle. Arthur Wynne's puzzle was called The Word Cross. Then, thanks to a well-placed typo two weeks later, it was published as a cross word, first with a hyphen and then without. The new name stuck. Wynne was very pleased with his popular new feature and he wanted to patent it. But the New York world wouldn't kick out the $100 required to file an application, so no dice. Talk about a mistake in retrospect. The puzzles were so popular that people started hounding Wynne for even more difficult challenges. He must have been burned out because he handed the task off to his secretary, Margaret Petherbridge. She was a graduate of Smith College and instantly loved the challenge of the puzzles. Now you may never have heard of her by name, but she is considered the mother of the modern crossword. She established norms such as separate lists for the across clues and the down clues, meticulous proofreading, a woman after my own heart, and avoiding what are called unchecked boxes. Those are squares that are only part of a single word. She also established the importance of rotational symmetry, which means that the puzzle's visual pattern appears the same even when the paper is turned upside down. Crosswords were on their way to becoming a mainstream fixture in newspapers. Then, like so many other inventions, they crossed paths with World War I. In this case, the war reportedly boosted the puzzle's popularity by providing people with a distraction from all of the horrible news in the paper. In fact, this is when some papers started printing right on their cover which page the puzzle could be found on. That made it easier for readers to flip past all of the sad news and get straight to their daily crossword. Crossword puzzles, as they became an increasingly common part of newspapers, were also becoming a huge nuisance in libraries. Interesting to think about crossword puzzles as a library problem. Reference desk librarians complained that puzzle fans, as they were called at the time, were making it too hard for legitimate students and scholars to get what they needed. It was right about that time that publishers, Simon and Schuster, realized there was a lucrative market for crossword puzzles. Richard L. Simon and M. Lincoln Schuster, we know them today, of course, as Simon and Schuster, they're one of the largest publishers in the world today. But back then, they were just two guys looking for a way to start a company. And as it turned out, their very first book was the crossword puzzle book we're recognizing today. Richard Simon's aunt was a huge fan of the puzzles and she wanted to know if there was a book out there that gathered up all of the New York World puzzles that had been released to date. When the men found out there was not, they had found their answer and they set about to publish one. They gathered up about 50 puzzles and printed 3,000 copies of the book. Ironically, they didn't use the imprint Simon & Schuster on it because they were expecting the book to be a huge failure. Kind of makes you wonder why they decided to publish it. Luckily for them though, they were wrong. 
They sold the initial 3,000 coffees, plus another 37,000 after that. Their crossword compendia became the longest continuously published book series in existence. And since its inception, Simon & Schuster has always had at least one crossword book in print. So they were on their way as publishers, and crosswords took another step towards being a permanent fixture in our lives. Can't help but think the bonus prize of the pencil helped them out. One interesting fact about their initial book, it came with a penny postcard that you could send back to the publisher to request the answers. Apparently, it was really important not to cheat in 1924. It was so important that they didn't include the answers at the back of the book. That was an innovation that would come later. Crossword mania swept the nation. There was even a popular song in 1924 called Crossword Mama You Puzzle Me, But Papa's Gonna Figure You Out. And no, I will not sing it for you, but yes, it was a real song. The puzzles may have been popular, but not all newspapers considered them suitable for inclusion. Example, the New York Times. The newspaper known as the Grey Lady sniffed at the idea of crosswords as being beneath their content standards, probably because of the yellow journalism association with papers like the New York World where they originated. Actually, the New York Times did worse than sniff. Here's what they said in 1924, the same year that Simon & Schuster published their crossword puzzle book. Crosswords are, quote, sinful waste in the utterly futile finding of words, the letters of which will fit into a prearranged pattern. This is not a game at all, and it can hardly be called a sport. Solvers get nothing out of it except a primitive form of mental exercise, and success or failure in any given attempt is equally irrelevant to mental development." End quote. Sheesh. They kept their noses in the air until, yes, World War II. Then they couldn't resist any longer. Two weeks after Pearl Harbor, in fact, the New York Times Sunday editor sent a memo to the publishers saying they, quote, ought to proceed with the puzzle to give their readers something to do during those long, boring hours spent in blackout conditions. So they hired Margaret Farrar, who we previously met as Margaret Petherbridge at the New York World, and she edited their crossword section until 1969. Not everyone in World War II was such a fan of crosswords as the New York Times had turned out to be. They were made illegal in Paris, France, out of fear that they would be used to deliver encoded messages to the enemy. On the other hand, the famous British decryption establishment, Bletchley Park, asked its cryptologist to solve a daily telegraph crossword in less than 12 minutes as part of its recruitment process. Now there's a job interview I would have failed for sure. Today in the United States, there are an estimated 50 million people completing, or let's be honest, attempting to complete crossword puzzles. And about 60% of them, or 30 million, do those crossword puzzles in newspapers. That includes half of all Americans age 18 and older. They are called cruciverbalists, or people who enjoy crossword puzzles. I wonder if that word has ever been the answer to 17 down. People who actually create the crosswords are usually referred to as constructors, compilers, or setters. The New York Times, which was formerly too good to run crosswords, pays their constructors $500 each for weekday puzzles and $1,500 to make the much larger and more difficult Sunday edition puzzles. 
There are over 400 million crosswords printed in newspapers each year, and that includes 9 out of 10 global newspapers. Yes, still including the New York Times. On that note, it is time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Please don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. We'll see you here next time on This Week in Business History.